This is Tracy Davis, and with me is my partner and co-host, Tanya Esposito, and this is the Financial Law Forum. Thank you for joining Tanya and I today for this second part of our two-part episode on accessing capital under the Emergency Capital Investment Program. Uh, We are looking to do a deeper dive into accessing capital under the program, and we've invited our partner, Andrew Sherman, of Cypress Shaw's DC office to talk with us about just how mid-market and small minority-owned businesses can go about accessing that capital. Andrew is not only a strategic legal advisor to Fortune 500 companies, he also assists small and closely held mid-market companies in strategically accessing uh, capital formation, business growth, as well as leveraging intellectual property. Andrew, astonishingly, has written uh, nearly 30 books on this subject, so we are fortunate to have him here with us today. So, Tanya, can you just recap for our listeners what we talked about in part one of this two-part episode on the Emergency Capital Investment Program? Yeah, so in episode one of uh, this two-part series, we had the great opportunity of speaking with Walter about this program and and what it means and you know how we think it will um full unfold and and you know what sort of some of the potential challenges may be in the logistics of that rollout of this particular program but we wanted to follow up with a part two and speak with andrew because this is really part and parcel his practice and and what he does. And so it's sort of a real life application, if you will, how this program in play will actually help, you know, the sort of types of businesses and and clientele that Andrew's working with. So I'm really excited to have Andrew with us today. I have the very good fortune of working with Andrew. And so just really excited about this conversation and looking forward to, to getting right to it. Okay, excellent. Thank you um, for just going over for those of you who haven't had a chance to listen to part one, we would strongly encourage you to do so because it's important to understand what led to the enactment of the Emergency Capital Investment Program. The Small Business Administration in 2018 issued a report saying that most new businesses Funding comes through either personal savings, family savings, or, um, you know, credit cards or the like. Generally, um, access to capital is very difficult. Well, uh, the SBA found that with Black and Hispanic founders, the reliance on those personal funds are even higher. However, the Black hole, um, the Black, excuse me, the Black households median net worth is about one-tenth of white households. Uh, Additionally, it found that minority-owned enterprises typically pay higher interest rates and experience more frequent loan denials than their non-diverse counterparts. Um, 
also, which is, I think, critically important to this discussion, is the fact that minority um, entrepreneurs are even less likely to apply for loans for fear of being uh, rejected. So they do have recourses. They do have outlets. Andrew, what can you tell us about CDIFs and MDIs? Well, uh, first of all, I want to thank you both for having me as your guest. Uh, the second thing, before we get into the entities themselves, uh, Tracy, I'd like to pick up where you left off, if you don't mind, on, you know, let's just call it the end user crisis. Um, I've been working in this area since the early 80s. I've been a strong proponent of small business, minority and women-owned businesses, businesses being started in distressed economies, inner cities. Uh, I mean, th this time that we're in post-COVID and with all of the economic and racial and social unrest, I mean, we are at a critical inflection point in our society. And what we're seeing with the Emergency Capital Investment Program, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, you know, it, it, there could not be a more important use of our tax dollars, in my humble opinion. Um, you have so much interest in entrepreneurship and small business among America's very diverse youth. And that youth can't, you know, achieve their dreams and create jobs and create tax revenues and economic um, opportunity and economic development if they don't have access to capital as their lifeblood. So I just want to, you know, get that out there. The, the end user problem is very real. It's been going on for arguably hundreds of years and it's not fixed. Um, but we are blessed to have a program like the, the ECIP that is looking to support entities who then in turn support uh, America's young entrepreneurs and minority women entrepreneurs, particularly in distressed areas. So um, it's a very, very important issue. There's three really distinct audiences for today's podcast. There's the CDFIs and MDIs lenders themselves who need to know that there's this great $9 billion uh, financing, but they've got to access it by July 6th. Uh, then there's the actual minority uh, and small and disadvantaged business owners or prospective owners, our end users. And the third that I want to make sure podcast listeners are aware of is, is the three of us, you know, influencers and advisors, uh, the accountants and lawyers and consultants to these businesses, because I think what we'll see over the course of the podcast is that the CDFI and MDI program, while they've been very, very successful, they're underutilized um, in a number of areas. And they're certainly under the radar screen of a lot of small business borrowers. So, you know, this podcast is designed in part to make sure that those end users know that uh, the programs are out there. So to answer your question more directly without my intro commentary, um, a CDFI is a community development financial institution and an MDI is a minority development institution. Uh, these are um, institutions that have, that have been certified by the Department of Treasury as providing funding um, and affordable financial services, including loans to individuals and small businesses. The CDFI acronym stands for Community Development Financial Institution, um, which again can provide financial education, community support, loans, and other financial services, particularly in low-income and distressed communities, and to those that otherwise need it 
may find it difficult to access the affordable financial services. So these CDFIs are playing a very important role in society, very important role in our post-COVID-19 uh, recovery, which is probably where the $9 billion is coming from, from a policy perspective. Um, a minority depository institution, MDI, is either privately owned, uh, 51% of which is owned by uh, socially and economic disadvantaged in individuals, or as I think, Tracy, you're going to talk about in a second, a little bit more, uh, publicly owned institutions uh, by one or more socially economically disadvantaged in individuals. Um, and there's a lot more. Uh, there's a, several websites, including cdfifund.gov, and uh, there's more information on MDIs at the FDIC website, which I strongly recommend our listeners to check out if you're trying to learn more. But Many of, the of these institutions, despite the important role that they play in their communities, um, are not as well known as the household name banks, which may or may not have uh, the diversity of programs to support minority and small business owners in these economically distressed zones. And Andrew, as someone who has spent uh, a good portion of your career working with small businesses um, and minority and women-owned businesses. Can you tell us, what, what are your thoughts on how CDFI and MDIs play a critical role in the wealth distribution um, to these companies and, and these businesses and, and developing communities generally? Well, again, if you look at where we are, you know, we are at this interesting cross-section in our economy and economic recovery you know, you hear a lot of the pundits on on CNBC and Bloomberg and other channels talking about how the stock market has been up and people's uh, 401ks and wealth has grown over COVID. But for most small businesses, and as Tracy said, particularly minority small businesses, there's been a serious recovery lag. Uh, many of our nation's small and minority-owned businesses have been suffering worse than ever. They may have gotten some PPP support, maybe they didn't, maybe they got their applications in late, but you know these programs are not just a stimulus or support. I mean, there's some data I saw recently, black women owned uh, startups are growing considerably faster, I don't have the exact figure at my fingertips, than uh, startups begun by uh, white males. Um, this is not just an economic development or handout or, or, or stimulus package. This is the future of entrepreneurship and small business in our country. And, you know, without getting too deep into the policy, um, this is, you know, I, I joined the board of the National Foundation for Teaching Entrepreneurship back in the early 80s. I, be, well, I was chairman of the board for two years. I sat on the board for 15 years. You know, NFTE used to go into some of the most impoverished inner city neighborhoods and teach entrepreneurship as an alternative to street crime and drugs and gangs. And the programs are still going today, 30 years later. They've been wildly successful. And what every study keeps showing time and time again is that uh, many of, of the youth in these communities have excellent skills that would support them as entrepreneurship. But until somebody provides them with capital and education and resources and mentoring and coaching, uh, they're not going to be aware that a, a path that's an alternative to, to the trap that many of their 
you know, friends have fallen into is available to them. Um, so again, these programs are very important. Uh, Congress saw fit to authorize an additional $9 billion in funding to the CDFIs and MDIs, but the deadline is coming up soon uh, to submit the application to get the additional funding. It's coming up July 6th. And um, again, it may manifest itself in the form of uh, lending to banks, to credit unions, to private or, or not-for-profit loan funds. Even certain types of venture capital funds uh, can qualify for CDFI certification and get access to this capital that really is uh, critical to the, to the future of entrepreneurship and small business in our country. Um, it, and it's true. Uh, and you mentioned the lack of access to capital and the fact that, you know, there are levers that preclude or have historically precluded access to capital. Um, one of which is the location of the small entrepreneur. Um, if they don't have the right zip code, um, that's going to work against them in getting, you know, funding from traditional sources. Uh, the um, institution of the CDFI and MDI program is not anything new. It has been around um, since I believe it's the 70s. And um, this $9 billion is more funding than that this program has seen in its lifetime. Um, the typical. Yeah, aspirational request. I'm only worried, Tracy, that not enough people take advantage of it and mm -hmm. that we as taxpayers, you know, we're supporting these wonderful programs. And yet I, I don't know that they're getting, I mean, that's the point of the podcast in part, right? I mean, we need to raise awareness of, of these programs because we're supporting them as taxpayers, but it, it, it frustrates the you-know-what out of me when, when they're underutilized or underserved or... Uh, the people that need these programs the most don't know that they exist. And, and that's, why, that's why, Tracy, and I thought it was so important to do a part two, because while part one was incredibly interesting and, and impactful, um, you know, and I think that our listeners will find that equally as helpful, we thought this is worth a second round, you know, sort of to tease out some of the finer details and apply sure. it to real life, right? To talk to you, someone who actually works with these companies, you know, as part of your practice to get a, a better understanding of, or, or, or just to make this information as widely and as publicly available as possible. Well, and, and I do want to come back to a point Tracy made, and then I have one other resource I want to throw out there to your listeners. You know, Tracy hit the nail on the head. There is this inherent catch-22 in the borrowing process. You know, it's a little bit like a kid coming out of college who interviews for 20 jobs and keeps getting rejected because he doesn't have experience. Well, you know, at some point the kid's going to say, well, where am I supposed to get experience from if I can't land my first job? And that's how it feels to be a disadvantaged or minority or female borrower in an economically distressed area who has a great idea to start a business doesn't know where to turn. They go to a traditional bank, not a, C, not a CDFI, not an MDI, but a traditional bank. And the bank tells them, yeah, as soon as you have cash flow and collateral and, and, and other things, um, we'll lend you money. Well, you know, that's like saying, you know, as soon as it starts raining, I'll give you an umbrella. I mean, I, I, we, where is that supposed to come from if we don't get these businesses kickstarted 
in a way. And, and, and that's the most critical role. You know, you can start as a small business owner with a loan from a CDFI or an MDI, and eventually you may want to borrow from a more better known bank, uh, community bank, or, you know, regional or even super regional. Um, but you have to start somewhere. And, you know, otherwise we're destroying the fabric of entrepreneurship in the places where entrepreneurship needs to live and thrive the most. Uh, I mean, you know, a, a, a white suburban startup with access to their family's credit history and family's retirement savings and other things is just not in as much urgent need as a disadvantaged startup in an inner city neighborhood where the family does not have that type of track record or retirement savings or credit history built up. It's, it's as simple as that. But the way to pull everybody up by the bootstraps is programs like this. And they work. There's all kinds of great case studies and success stories. They work. We just need them to work more often. And to Tracy's point, you got a $9 billion infusion that's available for a couple more months. I, I hope it's taken advantage of. I hope it's drawn down. And um, it really is up to the CDFI, MDI infrastructure to make sure that it draws down on that $9 billion. Um, and, Precisely. you know, there are there are restrictions. And I'm going to ask Andrew for you to talk about that in a moment, about what some of the key elements are um, to CDFI's accessing. Can I, can I add one other just uh, interesting sure. observation? Um, so another area that's been under attack for a long time, not just the credit markets, but the equity markets, access to equity for black and minority owned and women owned businesses. It's been an, an old white man's club for quite some time. Um, one of the I'm a member of several groups on LinkedIn. One of the groups I joined recently, one of the fastest growing groups on LinkedIn is BLCKVC, Black VC. For the first time, there's a LinkedIn user group. It's an incredible group. There's updates several times a day. It's one of my favorite things. You know, more and more uh, Black and minority partners being made at venture capital firms, more and more Black, minority, and women uh, venture capital funds being started and funded by institutions, providing greater and greater access on the venture capital um, and equity side to minority-owned and women-owned small businesses. I mean, you know, there's a movement afoot. This is part of a larger movement, and it's it's obviously a movement that we just have to look at the news for five minutes to know is long overdue. Um, and I want to just echo your point, Andrew, because it is it is a movement, um, and it is a, a point in history that we can't overlook because, you know, as you know, money doesn't just stay in one place. It doesn't just, you know, reside there unused. Someone will either tap into it that may not necessarily um, have the same uh, uh, impact that, um, you know, the CDIFs and MDIs and their uh, respective customers, but also um, there, it, it, 
the administration is four years, you know, and that this is a point in time when the funding is there. It really is important for us to talk about it so that um, more and more uh, folks can look to either to have further conversations with their own local CDIFs or MDIs or, um, you know, reach out to the Department of Treasury uh, when it comes time to uh, July 6th and there are, you know, there's still funds to be tapped and, um, you know, because they're talking about possibly holding back some of the $9 billion for another round. But, you know, uh, to my mind, it's strike while the iron is hot. But what are your thoughts on, on that? hundred percent. I mean, we can get to this towards the end about what the future might look like. Uh, but, you know, look, without getting too philosophical, social or controversial, uh, I, I've always been a big believer that economic opportunity and economic empowerment can heal a lot of other wounds. And, you know, maybe we'd be pointing the finger at each other less if we could just make sure that everybody's got access to, it's not just the capital, it's capital, it's education, it's mentoring, it's coaching, it's feeling like if you have an idea for a business, no matter who you are, no matter what your beliefs are, no matter what color is your skin, that there will be resources and capital available to you to pursue that entrepreneurial opportunity. And, and that's what this country was built on. And that's what this country needs to be in reality. So these programs, to me, are all critical subcomponents of, of that larger vision that I think we all share. And um, you said at the top of our uh, program uh, that, of course, SIFARTH, as well as other uh, service providing professionals, uh, have the ability to assist in what may seem complicated. But um, if you could just talk a little bit to sure. listeners that may be CDIFs or MDIs about you know, what it is that they can anticipate and how folks at SIFARTH can help hold their hands through this process. No problem. So if you are listening and you are part of a CDFI or an MDI, uh, let us first communicate time is of the essence, right? There's not... There, there probably will be follow-on programs and extensions, but this one's coming up uh, with early July deadlines. You need to uh, submit an emergency lending uh, investment lending plan uh, in, in, in which the CDFI looks at a, you know, a historical two-year look back demonstrating your commitment uh, to providing uh, funding uh, consistent with these programs. There's a host of information on the Department of Treasury and other websites that walk you through some of the technical terms. I mean, um, <clears throat> you need to show that you've been engaged in qualified and deep impact lending under the ECIP. And there's a wide variety of guidelines, again, on the website to guide you through the application process, or we at SIFARTH can uh, help you through that application process. But, you know, they're, they're, from a policy perspective, they just wanna make sure that this 9 billion is being used consistent with what Congress intended and that the areas, uh, whether it's urban low-income communities or rural communities, the areas that uh, are being targeted for improvement. And again, this didn't just randomly happen. This is happening in part 
based on a perception that I think is true that the impact of COVID-19, the economic stimulus plans, even the PPP programs, they were very effective, uh, but they haven't been effective enough in terms of deep penetration into some of the communities that need it most. And, you know, the same thing's happening in general in the small business community. Um, businesses are opening up, you know, vaccines are penetrating uh, communities. We're getting uh, maybe not to herd immunity yet, but at least a critical mass. As these businesses reopen, uh, part of what Congress is trying to ensure through these application guidelines is that we get to the most needy parts of our economic recovery and economic development, and that funds are available not just for businesses that need to struggle to survive or have struggled to survive during the COVID-19 period, but also if you look at the employment data, there's a lot of people that have not returned to work yet, some by choice, uh, but others who may be saying, you know what, I'm not sure I do want to work at a company anymore. Maybe I do want to start my own business. Maybe COVID has taught me some life lessons around, you know, what I want to be doing with the rest of my life and that, that there's capital available to people in rural and urban low-income communities uh, that, 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 have those, uh, that have those dreams. Um, but I would strongly urge uh, people to take a look at the websites and the resources that are available on these government websites and certainly reach out uh, to us here at SciParth if you need help with these applications for access to the additional funding. Right, because um, what we talked about in the first uh, episode was that it's tier one capital, which helps to enhance the uh, CDFIs and MDIs um, ability to leverage that money in order to, to generate more um, uh, uh, assets available to um, their consumer. It's uh, low interest, uh, low cost dividends or interest rates, um, which are not payable for the first 24 months after the issuance. And the other very important um, fact that I think is worth uh, mentioning is that the Treasury Department is making up the metrics and the rules and methodologies on how to disperse these monies and in what amount as it goes along. So your early submission can help to create a template for what and how um, the Treasury Department along with the other uh, OCC, other regulators, OCC, CDF, uh, the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, um, how they interact with recipients of these monies. So you can help to set exactly. the stage. Right. And, and there's two and, other, and, two, sorry, Tracy, I didn't mean to interrupt, no, finish. No, no, that's okay. Um, there's, there's two other key points I wanted to make in this area before we get to um, some of the other questions I know you have coming up for me. Um, the SBICs, the Small Business Investment Company Program, which we haven't talked about, a critical component of access to small business, the rural business investment, the RBICs, you know, we haven't mentioned them by name, and I want to make sure we call them out on the podcast. These programs, to a point you made earlier, the SBICs were authorized in the late 1950s. I mean, 1950s. I mean, these, the commitment to small business in disadvantaged and rural areas has been around for a long time, and yet 
I guarantee you, if I walk down the hallway of our law firm, entering law firm, and ask, what is an SBIC? Most people would look at me with a blank stare. So it's very important that we raise the awareness of these programs, not just to the sources of finance, but to the end user. And the other point you made, which I want to reinforce, I mean, they literally publish model term sheets uh, on the Treasury websites. And these model term sheets, I mean, if you take a look at them, they're, they're quite favorable. And so, you know, if you're still on the fence about whether to try and get access to some of this $9 billion, just take a look at the model term sheet and you'll see that, you know, that capital is available to you. It's some, some, some pretty uh, low cost of capital made me wish I, I had a CDFI and I can apply for the capital right now. Uh, no, I, I can certainly appreciate that, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested, as you mentioned earlier, Andrew, in seeing, you know, how many folks are able to get an application in before this July 6th deadline, right. And, and to sort of, um, better understand whether this is going to be as effective as it could and should be, um, and, and sort of compare that, you know, if, if you will, with, with prior programs that we've seen, right, which may or may not have obviously been this large in number or this accessible, um, and, and just try to, you know, keep our eye on what impact this program is having and keep our fingers crossed at the same time. 100%. I mean, look, you know, the business news tends to overfocus on the Fortune 500 and the big publicly held companies and lately, you know, Bitcoin and SPACs and all this other stuff that Wall Street likes to talk about. But, you know, 55, 60 percent of the jobs in this country are created by small business owners and small business borrowers. And, you know, it's easy to forget about that when you're focused on all the the hot new financial trends. Um, you know, if we don't get, make sure that small business owners and particularly minority and women sm- small business owners and small business owners in uh, distressed economic areas, rural areas, get access to capital, I mean, our, our economy is in much deeper jeopardy uh, than, you know, if, if, if one of the big restaurant chains files for bankruptcy. Um, another thing I was thinking, I don't know if we're uh, ready, Tanya, to go to the next question or if we're there, but, you know, if, if you are, um, you know, if, if you are CDFI or MDI, uh, you know, if there's things you could be doing to more aggressively reach out uh, to your communities, I mean, doing educational events, I've been speakers at some of these events that have been sponsored by community development corporations and community development banks and um, the small, another program we haven't talked about is the small business development centers um, that often partner with the CDFIs and MDIs that are in their region. You know, it's a good, people are coming back together for live events. Um, You know, June would be a great time to do an educational event on access to financing and, you know, bring some of the uh, the borrowers and the sources of capital together and raise awareness of these programs. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think we have a role to play in that process as well. Um, and, and I, you know, I know Tracy and I have had conversations um, 
about um, trying to pull together uh, just a panel, right, for our community, for our client base to, to talk about these very points. Um, but the other, the other thing that uh, Tracy and I were thinking about is, do you know if there's a website to locate the nearest CDFI or MDI near you? Or in your experience, what, what's the best resource for someone who's listening to this to sort of, um, other than the websites we've already mentioned, you know, to sort of get some more information on that? Yeah, I, I don't know if there's a website that aggregates all of those lenders. There are some websites. Um, one thing, this Small Business Development Center program, um, look for the Small Business Development Center in your region, um, in our uh, region. Uh, I say our, Tracy, talking about D.C. as opposed to New York, because Tom right. and I are in the D.C. office. Um, <laughs> Howard, University, Howard University runs a very uh, robust uh, small Business Development Center on campus, as does University of Maryland and George Mason. So um, you might start with your Small Business Development Center in your region. Make sure you, you ask one of the SBDC counselors, and this is all free, um, that you are interested in CDFI or MDI financing sources, not just the usual uh, go-to banks. Um, and, you know, maybe start there uh, in terms of, you know, doing a web search. But the the ASBDC.org, the Association of Small Business Development Centers, has a good, um, uh, you know, navigational guide to make to find the local, the SBDC near you. And I know New York has a robust network as well. So I just do want to mention that there is a website where you can go that the Department of Treasury maintains called um, cdfifund.gov and you can put in your uh, zip code and your state and it will provide you with the CDFIs that are in your locale. Um, there's also a website for MDIs as well that you can search to find out which ones are near nearest to you. Um, so uh, the resources are certainly out there and available. Yeah, one but, other um, thing for the end user borrower is, look, if you're aware of CDFIs and MDIs that are in your backyard and you think that, that those institutions may not, be, may not be aware of this $9 billion financing, you know, you as the end user could, you know, make a phone call, send an email or knock on a door and let them know that this funding is available. If you happen to be listening uh, to the podcast as an end user, and, and you're thinking that, you know, a CDFI or MDI in your backyard is not aware of these programs, or maybe not aware of the application deadline or application requirements, uh, you can be the catalyst in your, in your, uh, in your region. Right, because not all, um, as, as you mentioned, Andrew, not all CDFIs are the same. Um, some offer different kinds of uh, financial services. So it's worthwhile doing your homework. Um, and again, if they're if they don't if they don't seem to know about the program, then maybe you know with you calling and inquiring, you can get um, get them to recognize that these funds are available and out there, and that you would like to utilize their services in accessing them. Yeah, one other critical point I just want to drive home for your listeners. Um, 
all of credit is around risk, okay? And the reason why so many small minority businesses have had trouble with traditional banks is again, as we've mentioned, they can't, this catch 22 of overcoming and uh, risk mitigation at the early stages of their business. The CDFI created these loan programs to, to know that they would be higher risk, to know that there might be collection and liquidation uh, procedures. You know, the, the, the risk has been baked in. Uh, many small business owners who are startups uh, or pre-revenue get rejected from bank loan opportunities. Again, the criteria for these loans anticipates businesses that generate uh, minimal or no revenue. So, you know, if you're listening to the podcast and you're thinking, oh, you know, I've had bad experiences with the credit markets, I'm gonna have the same bad experience with the CDFI or an MDI, that may not be the case. These institutions have been set up to anticipate risk and to bake into their lending programs uh, the fact that you may not be coming to them with, you know, long years of credit history or significant amounts of collateral. Yeah, I think that's important. That's that's. And the loan amounts can be as small as a thousand dollars, you know, with flexible terms. So, you know, these are programs that can be used for working capital, for equipment or machinery purchases, for you know, build out costs if you're building a retail store or a restaurant or leasehold improvements, even real estate acquisition and construction, as long as it's not a, you know, speculative real estate venture. Um, but it's, you know, it's more around creating uh, a small business uh, presence in, in the community and, and creating jobs and tax revenues that go with it. Yep. Um, Andrew, if you could, you know, <laughs> give one piece of advice to, to anyone who might be, you know, thinking about trying to access this capital and submitting an application, but is discouraged um, because of, you know, the, the issue you just identified or the process itself, what would you say? Well, I would say that, look, these programs are very robust, but they're not a gift. It's not a grant. It's not a handout. It's, it's designed to anticipate the, the, the reasons for your frustration as an end user borrower have already been thought of by the CDFI and the MDI. And so, you know, you still need a loan proposal and a business plan and a, and a cash flow forecast. You know, don't think that you just walk in and say, here I am, where's my money? Um, these are not handouts or gifts, what they are is attempts to bridge the gap in the credit markets um, and, and, and anticipate the very things that have caused your frustrations. And so, you know, the, 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 the best advice I could give to some of the end user borrowers would be whatever it was that frustrated you from your last five meetings with banks uh, may or may not apply with a CDFI or MDI because they, they've been there and done that and, and they've been built to anticipate those those points of frustration, but but it's not it's not a gift. I mean, you still have to be ready, and you want to be ready. You don't draft a good loan proposal and cash flow forecast and business plan just to appease your lender. You do it because you're trying to you know build something that you can be proud of five and ten years from now, or turn over to your children for to be a next generation family owned business. So 
Um, there's a lot of a lot of reasons why you know you want to do this and do it right, but uh, these these uh, financial institutions have, and the programs that they're running have been built to anticipate those frustrations. Uh, that's exactly right. And the one other thing I think is worthwhile adding is that the credit market itself has changed somewhat with the use of technology um, in uh, assessing credit risk. And uh, at least in one instance that I can think of, uh, it is being relied on artificial intelligence and predictive analytics is being relied on in assessing credit. Um, as I'm sure, Andrew, you've noticed in the credit market, less reliance is being placed on, you know, those traditional metrics um, and uh, more technology-based uh, analyses are now being utilized in making those assessments. So where you may well, have... Yeah, I, I mean, go ahead. Uh, no, I just would love love for you to talk on where you know you you mentioned that the experience may have been such in the past that it wasn't a pleasant one. You know, I think overall there are changes that are underfoot in the larger market that also may impact that. But you're, I'd love to hear you. I'd love to hear you talk on that. All right. So so there's two big buckets that Tracy just raised. One is the use of AI and technology to assess credit risk. And I'm a big believer in AI. I don't, the story I'm about to share is not anti-AI, but the algorithm can fail. And the algorithm can fail in ways that we didn't anticipate and in ways that are socially uh, very disturbing. Um, you may have seen the story on CNN over the weekend of the woman who wanted to uh, buy from her uh, from her family estate the home that her family had lived in for several uh, generations, and she was looking to get it appraised. And the algorithm, uh, basically, the first two times that she had the appraisal, she put in her race, and the third time, just to see what it would do to the algorithm, she listed herself as Caucasian and the home was listed at double in value. So that disgusts me as it should discuss all of our listeners. Um, so I, I, I believe that the algorithms for the most part are doing good in making credit risk assessment, you know, um, uh, more neutral, but the algorithm also does things like you see on CNN that uh, is, is, you know, morally reportable. Um, that's point one. Point two, FITEC, FinTech, we haven't really talked about FinTech uh, very much, but FinTech is making the world of small and minority business borrowing very, very exciting. There are P2P, peer-to-peer -peer lenders and peer-to-peer -peer lending sites, you know, Lenders Circle and others where I can go online as a successful minority entrepreneur and decide that I want to provide direct loans to a young uh, minority entrepreneur that's struggling to get access to bank lending or equity funding. And we can't, you know, we can't end this podcast without at least mentioning that the future of small and minority business lending and women-owned business lending 
rests in part in the traditional banks, rests in part in the CDFIs and the MDIs, but also rests in part in the rapidly growing world of fintech and alternative lending and peer-to-peer lending. And, you know, that's growing very, very quickly. So if you're listening to today's podcast and you're thinking about, you know, where might my funding come from, uh, we hope you learned a lot about the CDFI and, and, and MDI program. We already feel your pain relative to the large uh, banks, but you also should probably be poking around the web for peer-to-peer lending sites and other fintech and small business lending that's growing very, very quickly. And that might be the focus of a future podcast if you guys are game, but um, there's a lot going on in that area as well. So Tracy, you're 100% right. Technology is the way of the future. It's going to assess credit risk differently as long as it doesn't wind up like uh, that poor woman and her family on CNN this past weekend. Uh, but also the area of fintech is changing the small business lending world uh, very, very rapidly. Well, I think you were reading our minds because Tracy and I have also been, you know, reading and writing a lot about fintech issues and are very, very interested in that particular topic and, and we'll absolutely have some content um, there. So stay tuned for that. Well, I was using the AI algorithms to read both of your minds, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to admit that on air. It's probably a privacy violation. Fair enough. Um, uh, well, this has been a great podcast. I don't know if there's any wrap-up questions that you have for me, but um, I've enjoyed it, and I hope all of your listeners have enjoyed it as much as, much as I have. It's been a pleasure, Andrew, um, and very informative on multiple fronts. So just, uh, I guess what we have to do is put a place saver in your calendar to see what the Treasury Department does as they get this program underway and look to have you back. Sure, that would be great. I mean, as far as wrap-up advice or practical advice, you know, for end user clients. So the last couple of things I'd say before saying goodbye and thank you for having me, you know, again, there is no substitute for a good loan proposal or business plan. Do that, not just for your lender, do it for yourself, do it for your employees, do it for your family, you know, make sure that the business that you're building and the business that you're borrowing against, you know, is a viable business. Sometimes the business plan before you go to the bank could show you where the business isn't viable. The second thing, you know, build relationships. A lot of credit, no matter how technical the algorithms get on credit assessment, um, a big part of the five C's of credit is character and capacity. And character and capacity will always be uh, parts of credit assessment. You know, you may not have a lot of collateral. You may not have a, uh, a favorable credit score, but are you a good person? Are you a person that People can rely on, or you're a person that's going to take repayment of these loans seriously. And that can only be demonstrated through the work that you do, you know, in your community and in the relationships that you build and the trust that you build. And your last thing, probably the most important thing I can share, you know, know your ecosystem, know the resources. I am so worried that great programs like the CDFIs and MDIs are under branded, under recognized, underutilized, and they're community. 
you know, that's everybody's fault. It's our fault as advisors for not talking about them more. It's the CDFI and MDI's fault probably for not promoting themselves effectively, but it's also the citizens of those communities' fault for not taking the extra step to do their homework to know these resources are out there. So, you know, for most small business borrowers and small business uh, entrepreneurs and future entrepreneurs, there's a lot more resources out there than you realize, but you got to, you know, get up off the couch um, and really, you know, spend some time looking for them and identifying them and knowing what their various requirements are. So that's all I've got for today's podcast, but this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for, for joining us. We really, really appreciate the time and the collaboration. And I think that this is very helpful and hopefully our listeners will find it helpful as well. And we very much look forward to doing it again. Fantastic. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Andrew. Please join Tanya and I for our next episode of the Financial Law Forum, where we will explore another hot topic on the intersection of financial services, the law, and equal access to capital and opportunity. Thank you.